Amen. We are so glad that you, you are with us today. Okay, I want to let you know we've got a couple of exciting things coming up. Uh, we are working towards our year-end offering this year. We're looking at uh, funding missions from the perspective of how God's working locally uh, in our region, in our church, uh, through our nation, and to the ends of the earth. And so uh, we have a $20,000 goal, and we are uh, right now 60% of the way uh, finished that year in gold. So I just want to thank you for your generosity and supporting the work that God is doing in and through um, this local body of Christ. In fact, last weekend, we had one of the highest offerings we've had uh, at Springbrook um, this entire year. And so I just continue to be amazed um, by the way that God works in and through um, our local body of Christ. And I am so grateful um, for your generosity. We are looking forward to finishing strong this year. We're looking forward to everything that God has for us as we move into the new year. And uh, we are so grateful uh, that you can be a part of it. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to let us know uh, about um, just about our year-end offering or about our finances in general. But I want to thank you for your generosity and for your faithfulness in giving here at Springbrook. We have a uh, Christmas Eve service coming up on Thursday, uh, the 24th. It's a magic date. And so we're going to be hosting two in-person services. We've got one at uh, 5.30 and one at 7 o'clock. I just want to let you know that if you want to attend in-person with us, um, you have to pre-register for that. We have a limited number of seats. Uh, we're socially distanced and safe, uh, but you have to pre-register for our in-person service. But if you want to watch online, both services uh, will be online live. And uh, if you want to participate with us during that candle lighting uh, portion of that service, uh, you can stop by uh, after the service on 9 o'clock next Sunday or today. Um, you'll be able to pick up a candle, or you can stop by the office from 9 to 2, Monday through Friday. Um, we've got some candles available for you and your family uh, just to kind of help you. Uh, you have a great experience with us as we uh, celebrate uh, Christmas Eve together as a church family. So if you have any questions about that service, I want to encourage you to visit our website, springbrook.org slash Christmas Eve. All the information that you need about our Christmas Eve service will be there. And I just also want to let you know, if you haven't had a chance to download our app yet, um, you can text uh, seven, uh, Springbrook to 77977. You can get our Springbrook app. You can register for our service. Um, everything about our ministry is there. You can go to our website or you can use your app. We want to encourage you um, to get connected uh, to what God is doing in and through our body of Christ uh, here at Springbrook. And so if you have any questions about that, again, um, you can go to our website and you can find the information for that as well. Well, we are continuing our series uh, in Christmas as we head towards Christmas. It's called Christmas. We're looking at Christmas from the perspective of uh, the prophet Isaiah. And so we're continuing that series. Uh, that series. And I just want to warn you now that um, uh, if it's not too late, I just want to warn you that anything that you take out in November and December has to go back in the box in January. My wife and I have been uh, setting up for Christmas, and uh, I, I get a panic attack because there's all this stuff in the box, and I can't figure out where it all goes, and I just, you know, craftsmanship decor is just not, you know, in my wiring. I really appreciate our decor team. They did a fantastic job with our stage, and so, uh, yeah, but it's all got to go back in the box. I don't want to seem like a Scrooge or anything. It is just me uh, because I do get overwhelmed. Uh, I'm so grateful for my wife. Uh, last week, she was going through our basement, and she'd pulled out some, uh, some things that had been collecting since I was a kid. She pulled out a Christmas card uh, that I had wrote to my mom and my dad when I was, I don't know, it was, it's cursive, so I was probably around, you know, seven years old. I don't know, it's a 50-year-old letter. Does, does anybody keep stuff like that? I was kind of surprised. I got this 50-year-old letter to my mom and dad. My mom's gone to be with the Lord, and my dad's, I still get to share uh, this special time with him. But, you know, this was a little card that I made when I was just a little guy. I wrote Merry Christmas up at the top, 
And you can't really tell, but it was a cut out of a picture, and I glued it on the paper and wrote Merry Christmas at the top. And on the inside, there was a little cutout. There again, we got the little baby Jesus in the manger, and uh, it was all glued and pasted. And then very neatly, I might say, that's actually a good cursive for me. I wish I printed like that um, today. But there's a little quote there uh, from uh, the book of Luke. For you, unto you, is born a Savior. To mom and dad, love Dick. I went to buy Dick. My dad and I, I was, I'm a junior. And so somewhere along the line, they kept getting us confused. And so I changed to Richard. But, you know, there's a nice little quote from Luke chapter 2, verse 10, that I wrote when I was a little guy. But what's interesting is about that is that it would be 30, almost 30 years, 25 years later, before I would come to understand what that passage really meant. It would be almost, you know, over 20, 25 years before I understood what it meant to know Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I mean, I have, the, I have the quote there. I have the verse there. I got the baby Jesus in the manger there. And so, you know, as a child, I grew up, you know, with an understanding that God exists. I knew who Jesus was. But there's a difference between knowing who he is and having a relationship with him. I would propose to you that as we move towards the Christmas, that the majority of people around us still have baby Jesus in the manger. You know, for the majority of people, as we move towards Christmas, they still have questions about what Christmas is all about. And if you have questions about what Christmas is all about, and you're here with us this morning, you're watching online, I just want to say, I am so glad that you are with us. Because we exist to help people to know who Jesus is and how to have a relationship with him. You know, I had an opportunity to talk to somebody just last week about Christmas, and we were talking about the difference between Christmas and Easter. And so there's a lot of times people have questions about these holidays. We celebrate them. Sometimes we don't stop to think about what they are. If that's where you're at this morning, that's okay. You know, people have questions about Christmas and about Easter and about holidays like that. You know, for many people, Christmas is nothing more than just a holiday. But for those that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is a very special time. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a celebration of our King, our Savior, our risen Lord. You know, we're in a series on Christmas, and we've been looking at Christmas from the perspective of the prophet Isaiah. Matt started us off by giving us a framework about the book of Isaiah. We looked at the importance of our faith and placing our trust in Jesus and, and really trusting in God's power in our life. And then last week, Pastor Tim looked at uh, Jesus Christ, who is our hope, and we looked at all the benefits of having a relationship with him. And today we want to celebrate the joy that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and our king. Isaiah began with a vision of uh, Jerusalem and Judea. In the days of the early kings, he has a vision for them, and he prophesies concerning the southern kingdom of Judah around 700 BC. We have the kingdom of Assyria that is breathing down their neck to the east, wanting to come up against them, and, and they're boasting by by their strength, by their strength, by the strength of our hand, we're going to bring down Judah. And so they're boasting about their strength and what they're going to accomplish. And, 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 but God had made it clear that, that Assyria was nothing more than a means for him to accomplish his plans. And so Isaiah hears this, and a part of the prophecy is against Assyria. They're boasting that they're going to cut down Judah. But in chapter 10, we see that their boasting is, is what's going to get them in trouble. God says, you know, in uh, chapter 10, shall the axe boast over him who cuts wood with it? Is the axe in the hand of somebody that cuts wood greater than those that are wielding the axe? And the answer to that is no. And so God says he's going to punish 
the, the, the speech of this arrogant heart. And he's going to punish the king of Assyria that has boastful looks in his eyes. And so there's a judgment against Assyria. And that judgment against Assyria comes to a climax in chapter 10 at the very beginning in verse 33. If you brought a Bible with you, you can turn to Isaiah. If you've got one at home, uh, you can turn uh, to your Bible as well. Just go to the middle and then uh, just start going to the right. Um, it's past uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you get to Jeremiah, it's too far. But let's read together in the book of Isaiah. And if you're watching online, I just want to let you know down at the bottom, uh, down next to the chat, there's a place where you can actually open up a Bible online there as well. But we want to encourage you to, uh, to read along with me as we look at this passage together, and then or you can just kind of listen along. But beginning in chapter 10, verse 33, is this prophecy against um, Assyria. It says in verse 33, Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the burrows with terrifying power. In great height, he's going to tear down. He's going to hew down. The lofty will be brought low. He's going to cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And so we see here that, you know, we've got this judgment against this boastful, arrogant king. He's going to be bringing down uh, uh, Judah, but, he's, but it's going to be a part of God's plan and what God's working in. It has nothing to do with themselves, but what God wants to accomplish. And then, and then we can move right into chapter 11 with the next breath. He's going to cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. Lebanon will fall with the, uh, by the majestic one. And there shall come from a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight's going to be in that fear. And so we want to stop there for a second because what we have here is we have this picture in front of us of a vast forest that has been cut down and has been reduced to stumps. And it's from there that Isaiah makes this prophecy about a coming king, about the Messiah that's going to be raised up from this stump of Jesse. It's David's father. And so God is going to raise up a prophecy, a king, a Messiah from the stump of these forests that have been, get, been cut down. And what's happening here is Isaiah is prophesying the, the fulfillment of actually an earlier promise that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God has a word for King David at the time about this prophecy that's going to be fulfilled here in Isaiah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, the Lord says to David, when your days are filled and you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up for you offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he comes in iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. And not that Jesus Christ would have had any iniquity. There was no sin in him. But the point of this passage is that Jesus is going to be fully human. He's fully man. With the stripes of the sons of men. Verse 15 says, By my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so that's a promise that God gives David about his descendants. And Isaiah is prophesying that that is going to come true as a result of the work that God is now doing uh, in Judah. You know, this shoot of Jesse, that offspring, is, is Jesus. 
We know that Jesus, as we look through Scripture and we look at the passages and how the prophecies fit together, that this is actually a prophecy about our coming King, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our King of Kings. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior of everyone that has been waiting for him. His kingdom is going to be established forever. But what's interesting about this prophecy is that it does not tell them when it's going to occur. It could happen 700 years, 1,000 years, 2,700 years. You know, there's no indication of the timing of when it's going to happen. And this gap in this timing is called prophetic perspective or prophetic future. It's not difficult to understand, but it does affect our timing with regard to how we understand and how we read and interpret Scripture. You know, this past August, my uh, family and I had an opportunity to, uh, to drive to uh, Yellowstone uh, National Park. It's actually gorgeous. I had never been there before. And um, we, did, we drove overnight. It was a lot of driving. But I can remember when the morning was, uh, the sun was coming up and uh, we were driving you know, towards the Rocky Mountains, just the pictures of this, this mountain, this landscape. You know, I saw the, 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 the beautiful Rocky Mountains as a, as a mountain range. And it, and it looked like one mountain with maybe some smaller ones in there. But what was interesting about it is as I was approaching it, it didn't look that far away. But as I got closer to the mountain, I thought, okay, we're almost there. And as I got to the mountaintop, I realized that the next mountain, even though it just looked like it was just a few miles away, it was actually going to be an hour before I got to the next mountain range. I got over that mountain and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, it's a long way down. There's winding curves. I had to go back up the mountain. And from my perspective, what looked like was just maybe a few minutes away was actually an hour away. You know, there was no, there was no uh, 3D effect. I couldn't see the peaks and the valleys, and the mountains and the turns, and I couldn't see everything in between it. So from far back, it looked like one mountain range. But in reality, it was many mountains with much distance between them. And that's what we call from an Old Testament perspective. That's what we refer to when we talk about prophetic future. We talk about prophetic um, uh, perspective. You know, sometimes when we're reading through the Old Testament, and this is where, where Isaiah was standing, he gets a vision of the future and what is to be. But he doesn't get clear detail with regard to how quickly things are going to be happening in between his prophecies. You know, the Apostle Peter writes about this in First Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, he says this, concerning our salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours, we know that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. From an Old Testament perspective, though, that was a prophecy that was to be theirs. They searched for and inquired of it carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, we're reading the Old Testament and we're searching for when these things are going to come true. And we have the benefit today of being able to look back on the Old Testament. We have the benefit of looking at the New Testament today and we can fill in some of those gaps. And so in some ways, we have actually, we, we have more of an advantage over Isaiah did at the time because we can now compare the different writings. We can compare the writings of the prophets. We can look, we have the benefit of 2,700 years of, of experience and, and history that we can look back on to help us fill in these gaps. And those are things that Isaiah didn't have. He was looking into the future from a prophetic perspective without understanding the details. And then the best part is today we have the New Testament. We have Jesus Christ who claimed these prophecies for himself. We have the benefit of being able to study the New Testament and look at these Old Testament passages 
now with an understanding of what's actually transpired. You see, we have to understand the Old Testament based on what we find in the New Testament. You know, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus did not come to replace the Old Testament. He came in fulfillment of it. And so when we're reading through the Old Testament, we have to look at how Jesus used those passages. We have to look at how the early disciples and the apostles used those passages. And we now have the benefit of being able to layer these two things together. So now we have a complete picture or a better picture than at the time when Isaiah made his prophecy. And so as we look at Isaiah chapter 11, there are some things that are going to be crystal clear to us. But then we cannot avoid the prophetic complications and the controversies that still exist today, especially with regard to the second coming of Christ. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. You know, when Jesus Christ returns, guess what? There are going to be no more questions, (laughs) right? And so we need the experience to help us to be able to look back on them. We don't have that experience now because Jesus has not returned yet. And so chapter 11, as we look at this chapter, it can be broken out into several different sections. But for the purpose of our time today, um, I want to break it up into three different parts. And it looks like this. When we look at Jesus, he is no ordinary king. And we can see from the first part of Isaiah that we can see who Jesus is and we can see how he rules. And we're going to be able to see that with some clarity because of what we know about him and his ministry today. But then we're going to move into the middle and the back end of Isaiah, and we're going to look at the peace that comes about as a result of Christ and what that peace looks like in his kingdom. And then we're going to talk about who Jesus Christ is as a sign for all the people. And so we want to look first at this beginning part of Isaiah in uh, the first two verses. In chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says that they shall come from the shoot of the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And it says in verse 2, it says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And in his delight, the fear of the Lord is going to rest. And so I want to stop there for a second because I want to look at verse 2 for a second. This prophecy about the Spirit of the Lord resting on this king, on this shoot, is something that Jesus would apply to himself. It's a passage that Jesus is going to look at and say, hey, this applies to me. This prophecy is one that he's going to claim for himself. Jesus saw himself as a fulfillment in this prophecy. In uh, the book of Luke chapter 4, Jesus is walking with the disciples. He's rejected uh, by the citizens of a of a nearby synagogue he's in. In verse 16, it says, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, uh, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And so Jesus is working through Nazareth, making claims about himself, and he's teaching. And then verse 17, it says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. This passage that we're looking at today in Isaiah 11, Jesus had in his hands when he was sitting in the synagogue. It was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. He found Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And it wasn't, uh, you know, like it was written today. We didn't have chapters and verses. But he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Jesus takes that passage, and he claims it for himself, because he has anointed me. My Father has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and recovering the sight of the blind, to set the liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Lord's favor. And I love this passage next. In verse 20, it says, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. <laughs> and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. Jesus opened up the scroll, claimed that passage for himself, and then everybody had to grapple with the reality of what that meant. And there are many today that rejected him. There are some that accepted him. And for those that accepted who he was, as the Christian faith has been built on that. But today we still have people that are rejecting Jesus Christ as this offspring of Judah. You know, but for us today, we celebrate the fact that we know who Jesus is. Jesus claims this passage for himself. And there's at least seven aspects of the Spirit of the Lord that rests on Jesus that I want to spend just a moment looking at because this gives us an idea of who Jesus is. Jesus has the Spirit of the Lord on him. And it looks like this. He has the Spirit of the Lord. And he has the Spirit of the Lord. He doesn't have the Spirit of men. This is not something that's been man up. You know, it's not man-made. It's not something he took upon himself. It was something that the Father has been, has given to him. And so he has the Spirit of of the Lord on him. That's one of the first characteristics that we know about who Jesus is. He's got the fullness. He embodies the fullness of who God is in his person. He has the spirit of the Lord on him. He is the God of Israel, rested and fully God with the spirit of God on him. In Luke chapter 9, James and John see a group of Samaritans. They they say and reject Jesus. And so Jesus uh, uh, is talking to them, and they say, do you want us to rain down fire on them? And Jesus says to them, you guys have no idea, no idea what manner of spirit is that you are of, but I do. Jesus was the spirit of the Lord, and he knew it. He understood who he was. He had the spirit of the Lord on him, and then he also had the spirit of wisdom. You know, the spirit of wisdom was upon Jesus. He was perfectly wise in every way, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus became for us the spirit of the wisdom of God. See, Jesus doesn't have wisdom. He was not just some wise guy. He was not a good teacher. He wasn't just a moral person. He was wisdom. He had the fullness of God's wisdom on him. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you're to ask our heavenly father who will give it to you abundantly. That's the answer. Our wisdom is found in who we are in Christ. And so as you're searching God's word and and you're looking at the life of Jesus and you're looking at studying scripture and how to apply it to your life, that's where you find wisdom. And Jesus is the embodiment of what wisdom is. He's the spirit of the Lord. He's the spirit of wisdom. And then he has the, the spirit of understanding. You know, Jesus fully understands everything about your life. He fully understands everything that's going on around us. He fully understands every aspect of your life. And in every respect, Hebrews 4.15 says, that is why Jesus is our sympathetic high priest in heaven. We have somebody that is fully human, has been tempted in every way that we have, has struggled with some of the same things that you're struggling with today, and he's overcome those things. And you have a sympathetic high priest that understands what you're going through. He is understanding of your situation. No matter what you're going through today, you have a God that loves you and understands what you're going through and wants a relationship with you and wants to give you his spirit to see you through that. We serve a Lord that 
that has understanding. And he's, he's, he's a wise counselor. And so if you don't know what to do, he'll give you counsel for, on that. You know, in John chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the Word. He was God, and he, and he was with God. Jesus is fully God, embodies in, in the Word itself. And so as his perfect counsel comes through reading his Word. So Jesus has this perfect counsel that he can give to us through his Word. He has wisdom, and he has understanding, and he speaks to us and gives us counsel through his Word. He is a counselor, a wonderful counselor. And he sent us a wonderful counselor, the Holy Spirit, who will intercede for us and will strengthen us and help us to fully understand who he is and grow in our faith. You know, Jesus is the spirit of counsel. And then he's also the spirit of might. He's the spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counselor. And he has the spirit of might. You know, in Colossians chapter 1, it says that all things were created by Jesus through Jesus, and for Jesus. Jesus has the power to do what he desires to do. He is a mighty Lord and a mighty Savior, and he has the power to do what he purposes to accomplish to do. You know, there's many people that would want to help us if they could, but they're powerless. There are some things that other people just can't help you with because they're, they're powerless in that area. And there might be some in our lives that have the power to help us, but they don't for whatever reason. They don't know about a need. They don't care. And so, but you know what? We have a God that loves us. We have a son that loves us and has the might to help us in our time of need. And so he is a counselor. He has the spirit of might and he has the spirit of knowledge. Did you know that there is nothing about you that God does not know about. Jesus has the spirit of knowledge. The word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to the soul and to the spirit, to the joints and to the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There's no aspect of you that Jesus does not know and understand. Jesus is the spirit of knowledge, and he has the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Jesus is willing to keep himself in a place of submission and respect to his Father. Jesus has a healthy fear of the Lord. It's a reverence that he has for his Father and his Father's will. And that should give us comfort because it's not about his, everything that he does is a part of God's plan and God's will, and and that spirit of the fear of the Lord was on him. And so when we look at the baby Jesus in the manger, we need to understand that he's not just a baby, but he is a risen king. He is a savior. He is our Lord. And, and these seven principles, these are just seven that we find from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 11 that give us an indication of who Jesus is. The spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and a fear of the Lord. And so as we move towards Christmas, we're not just celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger. We are celebrating the fact that God in his infinite wisdom and his love came down to us, enables us to know him in this way. And that is the reason for the joy that we have in us today. That we have a God that loves us and that we can know him in a personal way. 
Jesus is not just a baby in the manger. He's, he's just not an ordinary king. He is these things and, and so much more. And so that's a little bit about who Jesus is that we saw from just that first verse in Isaiah chapter 2. And so how does he rule? And so we know who Jesus is. How does he rule? And we can find that in uh, verses uh, 3 through 5. Let's read those um, together. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He shall not decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with with righteousness he shall judge the poor. He will decide with, with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins. And so this is a little bit of a description that Isaiah gives us about how he will rule. We know who he is, and then he tells us a little bit about how he's going to rule. And from verse 3 there, we see that he rules with delight. You know, he rules with delight, and again, in the fear of the Lord. And what is so amazing about this statement is that it is so opposite from what we find in our world today and in our experience. I mean, how many people do you know that rule or are over you are presidents that do things not in their own interest? <laughs> you know, Jesus, out of the fear of the Lord, will rule rightly. The joy of Jesus is to stand in awe of his Father, His joy is to please his father, and his joy is to do the father's will. His joy, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. And Jesus is not in this for himself. He's in this for his father. And he stands for you, and he has your best interest at heart. Jesus is for you, and he makes himself totally reliable with regard to how he judges us and to the judgments of men. He is a righteous judge. And verse 3 goes on to tell us that he does not judge with what what he sees with his eyes or he does not decide disputes um, with what he hears and with his ears. You know, his judgments are not based on the appearance or the opinions of others. You know, when I want an opinion about something, you know, the first thing I do is I'll, I'm going to talk to Carolyn about it or I'll get some, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? You know, you know I, I try to surround myself with people who are going to give me wise counsel. And so based on the things that I see and the things that I'm here, I, I might, I'm going to make some ju- judgments. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is going to judge based on the will of his Father. Everything that he does will be a part of God's plan. His judgments are not based on the appearance and the opinions of others. And because his joy, because his desire is to please his father, his judgment is perfect and it is equitable and it is fair and it is impartial. The righteous that are oppressed are going to be vindicated. And so if there's something in your life right now and you're a Christ follower, you can trust that God has got your back and you might not get to see uh, any retribution today, tomorrow, but there's going to be a day when we stand before God and, and God is going to judge righteously. And he, he's going to judge based on his father's 
will. The righteous that are oppressed are going to be vindicated. And the wicked, it says, are going to be struck down and killed. You know, it's no coincidence that the Apostle Paul would use the final words of Isaiah in this verse 4, that uh, with the breath of his lips or his mouth, the wicked are going to be killed. When he writes to the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, Paul writes this in verse 8, the lawless one is going to be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring them to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so Paul, understanding who Jesus is, applies this passage out of Isaiah uh, to his letter when he writes to the Thessalonians. And Paul's reference here is to the second coming of Christ. You know, when he appears, there's going to be justice. The breath of his mouth is going to bring to the end those that are wicked. They're going to be killed. You know, and so what we find here with this prophecy from Isaiah uh, is that it it includes descriptions uh, that are related to both the first coming and to the second coming of Jesus. But there's absolutely no indication of time lapse. When will it be revealed? You know, when when will his appearance come? And so we're left again with a gap in in, in the timing of when this part of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. It's like looking at the Rocky Mountains, one big mountain range, but the peaks and the valleys and the the turns, you you just don't see those. This is prophetic perspective or prophetic future. You know, Jesus is no ordinary king. And in verse 1 through 5, in this this chapter of Isaiah, we see with clarity, you know, who Jesus is. And we see how he is going to judge. And so I hope that as you move towards Christmas, you have an appreciation for who Jesus is and what it means to worship him and have a relationship with him. That's what Christmas is all about, is celebrating the birth of our risen King, our Lord, and our Savior. But as we move into these next two sections, the peace in his kingdom and the sign that is for all the people, those are areas where we need some prophetic perspective or some prophetic future understanding. And that has more of an impact on how we understand his peace that we can experience and and what will be a sign to us when he returns. It's through subsequent events. It's through continuing study. It's through further revelation that we'll find out how all this works out. In Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, we see the peace of a global kingdom of Jesus. It says, beginning in verse 6, the wolf shall lie with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf shall be together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall gaze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the um, alder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we see from this passage, we get a glimpse of the peace that is ours and will be ours as a result of who we are in Christ. And what this picture is that we have, it's radically new, isn't it? It's completely different than anything that we've ever seen or been able to understand. And the summary point of this passage is found 
in verse 9, at the very beginning. It says, they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. There'll be no more hurt. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more weeping. This is going to be a place where there will be no hurt. And he says the reason for that and how this is possible comes about in the second half of that verse. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters are of the sea. The spirit of this king, the spirit of Jesus, the, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord will be so present and it's going to be so powerful that it fills the earth with the knowledge of God and it changes everything. It changes everything. And the joy that we have to look forward to is the anticipation of when this will happen. Doesn't that sound great? I want that. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) That's an indication of the peace that will be ours as a result of the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, many decisions in the Christian life don't come down to an absolute yes or no or clear answers. On major issues, God's word is clear, but on sub-subjects, Christians are going to need to find it necessary to agree to disagree. And how we live out that kind of unity is one of the focuses that Paul gives us in uh, Romans. In Romans chapter 14, it says, one person esteems one day is better than the other, while another esteems all the days alike. Each one should fully be convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Verse 10 says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God at one point. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So each of us will give an account to God himself. And he quotes Isaiah 45, 23 again, right there in that passage. And so I want you to listen closely to these next few words. Jesus Christ is going to return. That is an absolute. We don't have to debate that. It's one of the realities of our faith. It's one of the things that we have to cling to. It's It's a belief that we have to hold if we're going to call ourselves Christians. We believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was resurrected from the grave, and he will return again. It is a core belief of the Christian faith, and we have to hold tightly to that. Jesus is going to return. That is clear, and it's absolute. Here's the other thing that is absolute. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. Jesus came as a baby in the manger to seek and to save that which was lost, to help us to be able to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. He came just as it was foretold to restore our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But when he comes back, he's not coming back to help us have a relationship with his Father. He's not coming back to shower his love on us and to draw us into a relationship with himself. When he comes back, it's going to be coming back as a righteous king that will execute the judgment that is a part of his father's will. And he will judge the living and the dead. Each of us needs to decide right now 
what we believe about Jesus. We need to make that decision today. Jesus is God. He did die on the cross for our sins. He was resurrected, and he is going to come back. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have the assurance of heaven. You have the promise of full life today, and you get to experience all that embodies the fullness of a relationship with Christ. Now, when will he return? When will this happen? Boy, wouldn't you like an answer to that one? (laughs) I want to know. I eagerly anticipate every day that Christ would return. I am so looking forward to peace. I am so looking forward to being in his presence. The implications are of that, though, that the people that don't know him are going to be separated from him for eternity. And so I'm torn like Paul. It would be better for me to be with Christ, but God has something for me today. God has something for us to do today. And in our desire and our longing for Christ to return so he can rescue us from this mess, let's not let us forget that he has a plan and a purpose for our life to be witnesses, to share the hope that we have with others so that they too can come to experience the joy and this fullness of life that we're experiencing. In the book of John, Jesus tells his disciples, I came from the Father. I have come into this world. I'm going to leave this world, and I'm going to return to the Father. Jesus is going to return, but he tells his disciples before that, they're going to be scattered. They're going to be scattered. And in John chapter 16, verse 36, he says this, I said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you can have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Where is our peace? If you are looking for peace in this world right now, you are going to be disappointed. There is nothing that you see with your eyes. There is nothing that you can touch with your hands. There's nothing that you can taste. Everything is going to be destroyed. Everything that we see is going to give us a temporary sense of peace. I'm grateful that I have a job. I'm grateful that I have a roof over my head. I'm grateful that I have food in my mouth. But guess what? I'm not guaranteed those things. I'm grateful for my health, but guess what? I'm not guaranteed those things. There are things that give us peace and comfort in this world that at the end of the day are always going to come up short. Where is our peace come from? Our peace comes from him. He says these things that in me you might have peace. It is in Christ that we find our peace. It's in our relationship with him that we find our peace. In the world, guess what you're going to have? tribulation. Don't be surprised by what you see going on around you. Jesus says our peace is in him. You know, with Jesus as king, there's a future peace that we can look forward to. There's a new heaven and a new earth. We'll be physically in the presence of God. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more sorrow. And the peace that we have now comes from knowing who we are in Christ. That's where our peace comes from. That's where our joy comes from. You know, as we move through the Advent series and we celebrate our faith, we celebrate our hope, we, we celebrate our peace, our peace comes from understanding who we are in Christ. Everything else is going to let us down. In Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, it says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he's going to sit on his glorious throne, Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to come again. He's going to gather everyone 
around, and he's going to separate them, believers and non-believers. He's going to separate them, and the righteous, those that are with him, are going to spend eternity in heaven. Those who are apart are going to be separated from him for all eternity. And so that's what's, that's what's coming. When he comes, he's going to come in glory to judge. And so the key question is, is, you know, when is he going to come? We know that, we know who he is. And so looking about these three sections of how we broke out Isaiah, we know who he is and what he has done. We know that the, there's peace that we have as a result of who we are in Christ. Then we know, third, in that last section, uh, that he is going to stand so that others are drawn into a relationship with himself. The real question is, when is this all going to happen? And there's several different views about that. And if you're a theology buff, or if you're into theology, I know there's several books that have been written that have popularized the idea of pre-mill, and you find that from a scriptural perspective. There's the, there's the thought that Jesus is going to come partway down, and he's going to gather some people, there's going to be a tribulation, there's going to be a thousand-year reign, and then he's going to come in a final judgment. So there's a premillennial view. There's an amillennial view that says Jesus is going to come, trumpet's going to sound, judgment's going to happen, and the game's going to be over. Then there's a post-millennial view that says there's going to be a thousand years. We're not quite sure where it's going to be, and we're just continuing to wait. In the meantime, we're hoping that the world will just become peaceful and everybody will get along and everything will be good. Now, what's interesting is I've been a believer for over 20 years. Right after I came to faith in Christ, I started seminary. and I attended seminary not because I wanted to be a pastor, but because I, I wanted to better understand what I found here. You know, I, wanted, I found out it was written in Greek and, and Hebrew. I was like, wow, it's fascinating. I found about systematic theology. And so me, it was like a sponge. And so I've been learning for 20 years. And for 20 years, I want you to know, I have been wrestling through what's theological position I find fits best in Scripture. And you need to know that there's different theological positions about this. And so in this area, the majority of the pastors and the majority of the churches would hold the premillennial view. When you move out of this area, you get talking to other churches in other areas, amillennial view is more popular. And then there's post-mill. There's not a whole lot of post-mill. You know, I have been wrestling with which one of these positions do I want to hold? I want to be pre-mill so bad. You know, the whole idea that I can be taken away, that I'm going to be raptured, man, this is somebody else's problem. I love that idea. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? And I love the idea that, hey, Jesus is going to come back, and guess what? You're going to have another chance to make a decision for Christ because when that chair disappears and you see those clothes there, that's going to convince you, maybe. I love the idea that everybody gets a second chance to choose Jesus. I love the idea that I'm going to be spared from this tribulation. I want to be pre-mill. That's what most of my friends are. But as I read through Scripture, I also know that the trumpet's going to sound. There's going to be a blast, and Jesus is going to return, and we, we're not going to get more chances. We've already had a chance. Jesus has given us everything that we need to do right now to make a decision for him, and so I fall into the oddmill camp more likely, and so that's created some grief for me because most of my friends are pre-mill. It makes the conversations fun, but let me tell you, at the end of the day, does it matter which one you are? If we're going to sit here and try to figure out when Jesus is going to come back, we are missing the point of what God wants for us. In fact, Jesus says, no one knows the day of the hour. No one knows, not even me, only my Father in heaven. So what are we going to try to figure out? Now, let me ask you, which one's going to change the way you live your life? Because I tell you, if this entire church would would rise up and take on the belt of righteousness and be a a witness in this community, I'll be primal tomorrow. (laughs) What's going to motivate you to share your faith? You know, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we love that 
you know, we, you know we're, we're called to be witnesses. But I love what he says right before that in verse 7. It's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times of the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for us to know that. Our responsibility is to be witnesses. We receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us. And we will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And so as much as I like talking about when Jesus is going to return, as much as I look around what's going on with me, and I'm trying to figure out, man, what's going on with the government? What's going on? With the, what's going on? Oh. I'll tell you what's going on. This world is fallen and broken and in desperate need of a relationship with Christ. They need Jesus. And so our responsibility is to share what we know about him with others. That's what we do. It's not for us to be so consumed with the return that it negates our sharing Christ with others. And so as much as I like talking about it, I'm more concerned with talking about when was the last time someone shared their faith. I'm more concerned about when somebody made a faith commitment. I'm more concerned about what I have to do now with regard to being a witness in this community. I'm looking forward to Jesus returning, and I love those conversations. But at the end of the day, we share our faith. We share the, what God has done in our life with others, and we pray for the people around us that don't have a relationship with him. And so as we move towards Christmas, those things bring me joy. And we have these three things that we've looked at. If you go to this next slide for me. Who is Jesus and how he rules? We see that with clarity. We know that our peace right now is found in Christ. In this world, there's going to be trials and tribulations. We know there's going to be a time when it's not like that. We celebrate that. That gives me joy. And we know that Jesus is going to be a sign for all the people. There's going to be a point where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And until that day, we want to fulfill the plans and the purposes that God has for us. In the book of Revelation, I want to leave you with this. In chapter 22, beginning of verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life, so that they might enter the city gates. The very beginning of the Bible and the book of Genesis, we're in God's presence. We have access to the tree of life. Sin enters into the world and we have a fallen and messed up broken world. When Christ returns, we're going to have access again to that tree of life and a new heaven and a new earth. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life, that they might enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, everyone who has put their faith in anything else but me. I, Jesus, I love this. I, Jesus, there's no question about who's speaking there, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And then he says this, I am the root. I am the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It would be a tragedy if we moved towards Christmas celebrated the baby in the manger and did not tell people who was there. 
This morning, if you do not have a relationship with Christ and you want to know more about how to have one, I would love the opportunity to talk with you. Any of our staff would love to talk with you. Our elders would love to talk with you. Anybody that is a member of this church would love to talk with you. You don't have to talk to me. Find somebody and ask them how to have a relationship with Christ. I believe that Jesus, God, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the grave, he was resurrected, and when he comes again, he's going to take me to be with him. You ask Christ into your life, and you know what? The Spirit of God is external. He comes in and he becomes your Lord and Savior and gives you joy, gives you peace, gives you a clear understanding of who he is, and gives you assurance of things to come. And this morning, if you have a relationship with Christ, I pray that the joy in you would seep out of your body, that others would see what you have in Christ and be attracted to that and want it. And so as we move through this Christmas season, let's continue to pray that our community would come to a, a full understanding of who Jesus is. Let's continue to encourage one another as we find and celebrate the joy that is ours in Christ. Let's put the meaning back into Christmas. Thank you for being with me today. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I thank you for the opportunity that we have had to study Isaiah's word. And God, I just want to thank you for the joy that is ours. I pray that you would continue to go before us, helping others to understand the hope that is ours in Christ. I pray that you would encourage those believers they're still right now trying to figure out what on earth is going on. <laughs> you know, we need each other. We need to encourage one another. And God, we lift this day up to you. We lift this Christmas up to you. We look forward to all that you have for us as we prepare to enter into a new year. God, we just uh, lift our lives up to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just want to encourage you, if you have any questions, if you're watching online with us, um, there's a, uh, a connection card you can fill out. Um, there should be a, uh, a link there. I just click that link. If you want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ, you can make that decision today. We'll celebrate that with you. Uh, but I'd really love the opportunity just to let you know that you were with us this morning and to answer any questions you have. So if you could fill that online connection card out um, before you take off today, that'd be great. You've also got a connection card in your seat if you're with us in person. Uh, if you want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ, maybe get baptized, take a step of faith, um, there's a place for you to indicate your interest in how we can help you take your next step. But I want to encourage you, um, you know, not to be hearers of the word, but doers. Look for opportunities to put into practice uh, the things that we looked at today. Um, I hope that you have a great Christmas. Uh, we're going to be uh, celebrating next weekend. We have our Christmas Eve service coming up. It's going to be a great holiday, and uh, we're looking forward to all that God has for us. Thank you for being with us today. I pray that the peace of Christ would rest on you, that you would go and love and serve the Lord. Have a great day, and thanks for being here.